0: We're speaking with two of the most innovative healthcare leaders in the world. Dr. John Halamka is president of the Mayo platform. Dr. Daniel Kraft is founder of the Exponential Medicine Conference and a professor at Singularity University.
1: I've been at Mayo Clinic since January of 2020, and I was charged with running platform businesses globally. And of course, what that means is. Connecting producers and consumers of information using algorithms and mobile technology and creating value, new businesses and new ways for Mayo to extend its reach
0: worldwide. Daniel, tell us what you're working on right now. Focus this year's
2: really been COVID. I've been sharing the X Pandemic Alliance Task Force, um, and the alliance is made up of 100 organizations from NGOs and academics to big startups and small ones, trying to kind of connect the dots and accelerate solutions for this pandemic and to prevent future ones and integrate some prizes like a rapid COVID testing prize and a new new PPE mask challenge, so trying to connect the dots and accelerate things to uh, help things out in the, in the current day as well as catalyze the future of health and medicine.
0: John, you're head of the platform at Mayo Clinic, and so when we talk about platforms, What do we mean, and why is this important? And then, Daniel, uh, please please weigh in.
1: Let's start with a, uh, say, radiation oncology or radiotherapy, what is called autocontouring. If a cancer patient needs radiation, a linear accelerator needs to be programmed by a physicist and an expert radiation oncologist, and it takes six-plus hours of human time. To review the films of the tumor and then program the linear accelerator. What if one developed a cloud-hosted mechanism to ingest images of tumors, say head and neck tumors, AI algorithms that would be able to review those and in literally near real time recommended the safest, lowest dose, most effective mechanism of delivering the radiation therapy to the patient and then auto-programmed a linear accelerator thousands of miles away without a radiation oncologist or a physicist nearby. Well, there's a platform that is connecting incoming data and algorithms, delivering something of value back, and ultimately improving patient care. So That is one example of what Mayo has worked on this year. And we'll have in prototype by the end of 2020. But broadly,
2: platforms are connecting producers and consumers and building value. That sounds fantastic. But uh, how do the radiation oncologists feel about that? Since you know, often the challenge with platforms are the misaligned incentives because uh, they're changing someone's lunch or moving someone's cheese, and uh, that's often harder than the technology.
1: So, what if, given your training in radiation oncology? Instead of doing one case a day, you can do 10. What if, instead of working in proximity to one town or one region, your scope becomes global? So The way I think about platforms is it's enabling us to deliver a higher quality of specialty services to more people and more geographies, democratizing access to expertise. At the same time, obviously, there is a business
2: in doing that that creates value. And I love the fact you know Mayo's and your work has often been global, but a lot of you know like politics, medicine is often very local. You know what we trained both in Boston. That's the way you do it in MGH versus the Mayo or the Stanford way. And now we can kind of crowdsource learnings, whether it's from China or Europe, into these platforms. Is 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 the interoperability still a a challenge?
1: The answer is it depends. Isn't that a great answer? So DICOM radiation, you know, radi radiology images. Yeah. Okay. Fine. It's a non-standard standard, and Philips and Agfa and Siemens and GE. Yeah, they're slightly different in the metadata, but the core images are actually pretty comparable. There is actually for radiation therapy DICOM RT, and believe it or not, every linac in the world is programmed using the same set of APIs. Hard to imagine, but let's take something else. EKGs. Have you ever written uh, for you know pick your EKG manufacturer a parser? And display tool for EKGs. It's like a Ouija board. <laughs> you know, every manufacturer does something closed and proprietary and unusual. So in certain domains, you know, the US CDI, FIRE, HL7V2, DICOM, good. Telemetry, consumer
2: devices, not quite there yet. It's still not quite there. I just had an imaging study back in the spring at Stanford. The only way I could get my, my, uh, my, my uh, cardiac study was on a CD ROM. I don't even own a CD ROM player anymore. So there's still some of those dots to connect. So fix that way. That would be true.
0: So, what kinds of platforms are necessary in order to provide the kind of results, John, that you were describing?
1: Well, why don't I start off with just a high level look at what Mayo has built? because it illustrates the kind of componentry you need. So Mayo has 154 years of patient data. And you say, wait a minute, how could that be? Well, remember the medical record was actually invented at Mayo Clinic. And back before TCPIP, we had pneumatic tubes, conveyor belts, and chutes. So you have paper, you have photographs, you have audio recording, all this stuff. So we had to create a platform by which we could take all kinds of medical data, de identify it, aggregate it, and then put it in an encrypted container for various algorithms, developers, innovators, and partners to work against. So that was our clinical data analytics platform, de identification storage. Next, we wanted to be able to deliver care at a distance for serious and complex care. So we Built a mechanism by which cloud hosted components can be used for remote patient monitoring, dashboarding, taking care plans and rules, and helping us take care out of bricks and mortar that's serious and complex, not just ambulatory visits. And then finally, new ways of ingesting the kinds of data that Daniel and I were just talking about and building mechanisms of doing data transforms, so you can normalize a whole lot of these new data
2: sets. We've built all three layers of components in the cloud. And a key key portfolio that seems to be, whatever platform you're on, I mean, there's some really amazing ones, but it all needs to work into the workflow of the clinician who doesn't want to have to log into 10 different apps or 10 different platforms. Uh, Is there a Mayo experience in sort of synthesizing that since you're sort of an integrated platform? And I don't know, what advice would you have for others who are trying to uh, integrate You know, go from, from, I was like the example, from data to actual information and that actual information kind of then works at the bedside or on your mobile device.
1: And so Daniel, of course, and I have worked together since 1994. So he knows the hard questions to ask, which is the back end, the AI, the data, the normalization. That's not the hardest part. The hardest part is the workflow. And so you start asking yourself, well, okay, depends a bit on your use case. EHRs have Fire CDS hooks. Okay, there's a means by which inside the workflow of an EHR in some places can call out to a cloud service, get a response. Okay, that works. Oh, and there's smart on Fire apps, apps that we would layer on top of the EHR. They don't really give you what feel, I mean, a fractured experience because, you know, it's like an app on your phone in a sense. I mean, it feels like it's part of the, the EHR itself. Oh, and then there's sidecars. Now these are not the greatest. I am in the middle of doing something in Epic or Cerner or whatever, and then my Windows taskbar pops up and says, "You know, here's an alert or reminder. Okay, it works. It's kind of in the workflow. It's a little clunky. So then you start to ask, oh, well maybe it isn't the clinician in the workflow that's necessarily the actor. Maybe it's a, oh, a care manager and they're running a separate application. And then oh it's okay because the EHR isn't the center of the universe. Maybe it's a patient and they're getting an alert, a reminder on their wearable or their mobile device. So, so I think Daniel's question is so key. Ask who are you trying to change behavior with and then what is the vehicle by which you integrate into that workflow.
0: So where does technology start and the when you talk about workflow and changing behaviors, that has little to do with technology and research itself, right? That has to do with just the propensity, the difficulty of humans changing.
2: I mean, the thing is, as clinicians we're often uh, you know the, the the sort of the oil of of clinical care is data, you know, whether it's vital signs or labs, um, and now we're having more of it come at us. There was a cartoon that was done at Exponential Medicine where it's the patient with a doc and the doc's like ah, I see the problem you're generating too much data um, and so back to that sort of workflow how do you synthesize that now that we have everything from our digitome our sociome our metabolome our genome um, and then make that you know actionable and ideally on these new platforms learn from the clinical experience around the world not just you know the Mayo way or the Stanford way um, and, and 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 synthesize the data into its actual components, so that it's not—you uh, know—no one wants to see the, the say the raw EKG data or blood pressure or um, other elements. But what does it mean in context, and even normalize that individual? Um, so there's lots of layers to it, but it's it's exciting time where it's starting to see the dots to connect.
1: What if we agree there's going to be a Twitter stream connected to your bathroom scale, so that every morning your friends and family and colleagues <laughs> see your weight. Oh well, that's a like daily social network for behavioral reinforcement. Oh, maybe that'll work, right? So, so you have to start thinking of what who is going to get what value from what you are doing and then use that to change behavior. And no question, that's hard.
2: Part of the challenge is a lot of these things, whether it's your scale or your Fitbit app or your EMR interface is sort of one-size-fits-all. I always like to use the example of, you know, we want to precision medicine, but we need sort of precision digital health or interfaces that match the age, the culture, the language, uh, education. So, you know, I've got a connected scale. It's not connected to the Twitter, but that's my most helpful thing. I see my I'm up a, de- up a pound or two, I will cut out the popcorn that night. Um, but to, to to match someone's Personality type and both incentives, you know, carrots and sticks. I think is part of that, including for the individual clinician or nurse or pharmacist. Um, we we tend to always build the system for the average. And since I'm a pilot, I always love the example of you know the cockpit. After World War II, the Air Force tried to build the uh, the best new cockpit uh, for, the, and they designed it for the average pilot. But of course, no pilot's average, and so pilots kept crashing the planes. So something about the design element needs to come in as well.
1: Right. And what motivates you, right? So we talk about social be you know cues or pressure. Oh, that may motivate you. What about economics? What if you agree that every time um, you walk by a pharmacy and you're willing to share your geolocation and there's a coupon that pops up for a medication or product you might need as you're in proximity? Oh, well, that might motivate some people. Or if you're a care traffic controller for your family you know being able to get your children or your parents the care they need more easily ah that might be a motivator and these are the much more interesting you know sociological parts of platform we have to consider
0: john as you're looking to build this data aggregation platform what are the what are the dimensions that are primary to you is it the is it the, where do these workflow elements fit in what are the data sources so it's basically i'm asking you know what are you what are you doing and where are you prioritizing
1: so at mayo clinic the primary value is the patient always comes first and that actually guides work by every part of the organization so we've started to say okay, well, if that's the notion, which is improving wellness and preventing disease and reducing suffering and really making something that is going to improve the patient experience, what kinds of things would you do? And so we've started to think, oh, okay, how about cancer risk prediction? How about the ability to do more rapid diagnosis based on voice or other kinds of telemetry or being able to do early diagnostic testing through uh, AI algorithms that aren't traditionally used in, in this particular purpose, so so we've started to look at those use cases, and then underneath the use cases are what data elements do you need, and how are you going to get those data elements and curate them? So so much of what I've had to do is yes, build the platform, some of the technical components, but then layer on top of that use cases that bring value that improve the patient experience.
0: And so obviously that then. Has its tentacles through the workflows that Daniel was describing earlier.
1: Ecosystem uh, that we live in is right. It's it's patients, providers, payers, pharma. You know, it's it's all kinds of new industry players uh, and trying to connect all those dots and ensure that you have a coherent whole. I mean, Daniel, I don't know. If, did you ever work in the early days of Google Health? or work on such things like Health Vault?
2: Tried them out at the time. The problem was they were just a vault and there wasn't any real insight or other element you would get from it. And I, I think now they're sort of evolving to you know, provide personalized recommendations or insights. I mean, even my Fitbit will look at my sleep and compare me to others my age and sex. Um, and But yeah, they weren't particularly useful. Well, that is exactly the point I was going to make, which is back in the day, we
1: built these components and those components turned out not to be adopted because there was nothing end to end that brought value to you, and that's the lesson learned from the past. We have to apply to the future.
2: One thing that came to mind, John. You know, we have these new platforms, including you know all the big data and AI. Some of the great work at Mayo taking a twelve E D K G and doing all sorts of predictive analytics on what does that really mean, or now others sort of. Uh, ICU-based software that can predict sepsis or other things early. There's also the, then the challenge of there's no one number to look at. It might be a sort of a synthesized risk score, and then our physicians, in your experience, being resistant to that. They don't understand what's underneath the black box. We don't even understand often what the machine learning is is uh, pulling from. Um, and as as we get more data and sometimes sort of magical insights, almost like the you know the picture of the retina from Deep Mind that can predict heart attack and stroke um how do we address the challenge of you know medical education and using that in smart ways when it's often a bit murky about where it comes from
1: so this is a great great point there isn't a consumer reports for ai algorithms but there needs to be hmm. which is i don't mind so much the black box issue as long as you say here's the scientific paper here is the validation that was done on the algorithm with a data set that was different from the original data set used to develop the algorithm. You know, Here is the population where it's going to be helpful to you or the, the ranges of utility. As long as I understood that, I'm good. And So, to Daniel's point, we have an algorithm that can look at your 12-lead ECG and predict your ejection fraction with an AUC of you know, 0.9. I mean, it's pretty good, in other words. Oh, okay. Well, if I look at an ECG and it just says on it, oh, this patient has a low ejection fraction, you might want to consider follow-up. It's not replacing me. It's augmenting me in a helpful way. Like, oh, I would have never thought of that. Of course. Let's get this person an echo. You just need a little bit of transparency for each of these algorithms because there are bad algorithms or biased algorithms we wouldn't want to use.
2: Big challenge is like if you're only doing European Caucasians for your genomics or your algorithms for your EKG to echo, uh, there's a lot of bias that can be done you know, from, not necessarily bad data, but um, not diverse enough data. I love the, uh, uh, the All of Us trial out of NIH, you know, which enables each of us to be a data donor sharing your genomics, medical record, et cetera, and they're starting to share that back. I'm not sure if you see that as useful yet, but it's sort of the Framingham study on steroids that will hopefully um, make these algorithms much more sort of uh, equitable.
1: Well, and there's no question that the only way to develop these really equitable algorithms is by federating our learning. because I could tell you, oh, we've developed this algorithm based on millions of patient lives in Rochester, Minnesota, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona, and Jacksonville, Florida. Well great. You know, d- does that work in Georgia? How about Southern California? And maybe yes, maybe no. But if you brought in, Oh, Cedars Sinai, and you brought in Emory, and you, you federate as you learn and train, you're likely to get a much better generalizable algorithm.
0: We have a very important question from Arsalan Khan on Twitter who says the idea that every doctor should have access to all the data needed to make an informed decision is great, of course, but it's highly dependent upon the budget of the doctor and the organization they work for. Less budget means less access to these platforms and to this data. What about that?
1: So much of what I've been trying to work on is not only building these things and looking at the use cases, but asking questions about ethics and disparities of care and equity. And of course, that applies to patients, but also providers, right? So you'd ask yourself, how do you make this stuff generalizable? And maybe it's not the best analogy, but Airbnb <laughs> is a pretty sophisticated technology platform connecting producers and consumers, but available to all at low cost for, with great utility. And m- many of these products that I am thinking about are things like, oh, you can get them on any webs- you know, website or you can get them on any phone. I mean, the- it wouldn't be a huge barrier. To distribute a lot of these things,
2: I think that brings up the idea of uh, we talk about you know the social determinants of health, which are super key, but also the digital determinants of health. Does your patient have access to a smart tablet or even you know not even high speed internet? There's lots of parts, particularly in rural America, that don't even have uh, low bandwidth access. Um, but at least my perspective is a lot of these technologies democratize. I mean, I, I this is my, uh, my my prop my 11 year old iPhone two, which. Twelve years ago was pretty amazing. Now it feels slow and clunky, but even the power of this and the bottom billions' hands or the lower socioeconomic status can be hugely impactful. And now that you can connect the dots in platforms like an iOS Health Kit, and now there's one called Common Health for Android, um, I think it starts to help the equity piece uh, as well.
1: And there's no question this digital divide, however you want to look at it, whether it's geographic. Whether it's educational literacy or all the rest, is quite real. And we need to ensure that we are meeting our customers at their level of technological comfort. And the quick example, which Daniel has heard me give before, is I had invited a number of very talented engineers to a Medicaid clinic. And they walked over to a homeless gentleman and they said, What's your favorite wearable? And his answer was socks. Right. And so assuming that you're going to have, you know, Apple Watch Series 6 or an iPhone 12 as a prerequisite is not going to work.
2: Well, there are censored socks, by the way, now for picking up diabetic foot ulcers. But there's also a digital divide, I think, uh, amongst clinicians. I mean, the folks who are graduating from Medical school now, you know, grew up on all these technologies. John and I were sort of at the cusp. Actually, when we met, when I was a medical student at Stanford, and he was a ER resident at UCLA Harbor, we I did a rotation there. We were the only two geeks with this Hewlett Packard 200 LX, you know, pocket computer, where we could you know take notes. Actually, share clinical data. He gave me his whole database. It was amazing. But we were the only two using it in the entire probably state. Um, so, how do we start to educate clinicians? Might, who might be over the age of 40 to use some of these tools. And I've been thinking about this because uh, I'm always asked, you know, what wearable or app might be best for my patient or to use. So I've been um, starting it. It's, a, it's still very nascent ver- version one, but a platform called digital.health. That's a website where a bit of a digital health formula, formulary, which could eventually enable you to match the digital tools and solutions for your patients. That's an example of a platform. I think we need sort of the education level for the clinicians as well to use them and match them to the right, Patient who may not have internet access or has 5G.
1: And this gets back to this concept I had about consumer reports, if you will, which is let's look at the user experience or the validity of a product or service. Because right now, um, a whole lot of our clinicians aren't sure what to buy or what to use. And one hopes we get to the point where a lot of these technologies are just passive and wouldn't it be wonderful, and I'm of course not advertising any product or service here, if I walk over to Alexa or Siri or whatever ambient listening device you have at the day and just speak, and oh, a diagnosis comes back. You know, There's a 67% chance that you have a neuromuscular disease based on the content and cadence of your speech. I didn't have to do anything other than just talk. <laughs> That's the kind of thing I think we're going to hopefully see more of from these platforms.
0: John, to what extent are you focused on these non-technical issues? When, I, when, when you talk about patient experience and user experience, I separate that from the hardcore dimensions of the types of data sources. So, How do you divide up between those two?
1: Mayo Clinic has two organizations. The platform organization, which I run, and the Center for Digital Health, run by Rita Kahn. And does Rita come out of the tech industry? No, she comes from Target, United Healthcare, places that have looked at how does one create a product for a consumer? And all of this usability and patient experience is parked in an organization with really deep expertise in that realm.
0: Daniel, as you look forward, how do we how do we take these innovations and make them accessible to clinicians? I think this this goes back to the workflow question that you issue that you raised earlier.
2: Well, I mean, number one, it's sort of potentially aligning the incentives or understanding the misaligned elements. So, if you prescribe that connected blood pressure cuff uh, to help manage hypertension, and that data can come back to you, are you Rewarded for that as a clinician in some form, uh, or is it not just become a barrier? Um, I love the consumer health uh, report element. How do you um, kind of provide the the ability when you're seeing a patient in the clinic who's got hypertension, depressed, is a smoker, and diabetes? You know, here's a set of not just drugs but other. Wrappers and platforms that they can use, and not have them overwhelmed with ten apps, but sort of prescribe a, you know, a bundle of solutions that might be their connected blood pressure cuff and an app to help them smoking do smoking cessation and something for um, uh, medicine adherence, but it's integrated and not scattered amongst ten elements. And then for the clinician, when you do prescribe that, hopefully that's covered by a pair in the future for some of these, whether it's a wearable or an ambient sensing or voice for diagnostics, and then that the in the workflow sense that that comes back to the clinician in a way that's. Actionable, not overwhelming. So imagine you, your primary care doc with 2,000 patients, you don't have that sort of reactive mindset where you wait for them to show up in the ER with a heart attack or stroke or late stage cancer. You're seeing a dashboard that might indicate from their sleep data that their resting heart rate went from 50s to 70s and something's going on. You might need to call them or their blood pressures are out of range based on where you dialed in them in. So it's complex, but I think we're starting to get to that realm and. Um, I'm not yet seeing that. Some of the payers are starting to think about sort of that digital formulary and re- rewarding those elements in a cohesive sense. Um, the challenge is we have thousands of healthcare systems in the United States, a around the world, so it's not a one-size-fits-all.
1: Well, and COVID has had a material impact on all the things that Daniel has just described because in, say, January, maybe 3 4% of our visits were virtual. By April, 90%. Okay, now November, December, maybe it's going to be 20%, something like that. But point being is we've gone from three or four to 20 in one year. And that has implied that we needed to get familiar with connected devices in the home, virtual visits, products that are commercially available on Amazon for patients to help navigate a uh, healthcare at a distance workflow. Uh, and so I think, in many ways, these last ten months have probably accelerated our industry
2: five years. My favorite phrase, stolen from Regina Dugan, who used to run DARPA, is that you know Sputnik sparked the space age, and COVID is sparking potentially the health age and accelerating some of these elements. Part of the challenge, and John, I love your thought on this, is like we still tend to digitize things based on you know we digitize the medical record, which kind of sucks, or the fax machine. And I think hopefully, what catal- the catalyst is a Covid as a catalyst is going to, you know, make these smarter systems—not not just your pulse oximeters connected through your virtual visit, but that you do the, you know, the chatbot visit first, that can really do the triage and the 20 questions, and then up, up, upscale is you, so that we're um, giving some resiliency to the system because you can get burnout, you know, on bedside care as well as website care, and um, a lot of the elements can be sort of uh, almost driven by an AI or chatbot, whether the clinicians like it or not.
1: Well, and I completely agree that as we move to more virtual visits as a new normal, that it isn't just taking what used to be a bricks and mortar visit and making it digital. That's not helpful. It's asking questions like, "Oh, I woke up this morning and you know, I'm feeling kind of tired, not really Michael." And uh, you know this cup of oolong tea, I can't quite taste it anymore, and I go to a virtual visit and say, lost my sense of taste and smell, feel tired, immediately then I am taken to a workflow that's going to help me get my COVID test. And oh, and how should I get that COVID test? Should I go drive to Quest or LabCorp? No, it is going to be delivered to my home, either as a swab that I would self-administer or a lateral flow assay that like a pregnancy test, I just run myself. And these are the kinds of things end to end that our sort of new healthcare and distance requirement is accelerated.
2: And what's going to come out of this, like even on the rapid testing. So we're doing this rapid COVID testing X there's lateral flow, there's home-based PCR. You know, there's already some little labby type things that'll plug into your into your mobile devices. Um, but hopefully these will be platforms we'll continue to use that you just change the cartridge and it can check for the flu or other viral or other elements. So what we're going through, from hospital to home, or hospital to hospital, we're going to have a whole set of, you know, not just virtual visit tools, but the, the you know, the, the sort of uh, um, idea of the medical tricorder, other sort of elements that almost every home is going to have, and, and that will sort of dramatically shift how we do proactive, you know, prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. The trick is to get it paid for in the workflow and inter- interoperability and the licensing issues, um, and then this, the, the chatbots to sort of be federated and learned so that. If it's John or Daniel answering the questions and I've got an abdominal pain, it already knows that I've got my appendix out or what my uh, med list is. And so it's, it's smarter about the, the triage and the flow.
1: But there's one other thing that Daniel has invented, Michael, that you need to know about. We've talked about digital diagnostics, but what about therapeutics? Oh, that's harder. So here is, uh, I think this is just like brilliant. Hewlett-Packard gives you the printer and sells you expensive ink right? Well, what you need is a medication printer. It's basically free, but then you have cartridges so that, oh, your doctor has just diagnosed you with this or that, and in fact, that digital therapeutic is now delivered at a distance
2: because the pill you need is printed in your home. And I bet you have something to show us, Daniel. I wasn't not trying to plug this, but yeah, the idea I've been thinking about since I trained in pediatrics and adult medicine and, you know, peds, we weigh every kid and dose by dose, but you're an adult, all of a sudden you get the same dose of everything, or you use a pill cutter. was the challenge of dose adjustment and combination. And then the idea of, yeah, essentially in our digital manufacturing, it's sort of 3D printing a, a personalized pill that might be my aspirin, my statin, my beta blocker, my synthroid. Um, and things. some things might need changed day to day, like my LASIX dose or Coumadin that can be measured from my home lab. And then eventually, yeah, you would have a little home printer. This is just sugar pills, but this could be a little home printer that would adjust your meds, you know, for folks who are in polypharmacy or even just a couple of meds as needed on, on a kind of continual basis. And that's called in telemedicine. There's a, a TED talk about that if you want to see more details. But there's still challenges about regulatory, is that is that automated compounding? How do you sort of build those sliding scales? How do you build the AI to know how to best adjust your blood pressure meds is a simple example without the doc being on the phone and faxing your numbers back and forth?
0: So, we have a question first about cybersecurity. Let's talk about that and then let's shift to some of the ethical dimensions because we have a question relating to that. This is from Kwaja Sheikh, and he says cybersecurity risks are huge for connected devices. How do we, it's, he says, it's time to adjust, adopt micro segmentation and zero trust architecture principles to accelerate secure health care. Outcomes. So, as we're sharing all of this data, how do we make sure that it's secure and not used against us?
1: Well, I'll start off simply by saying multi layered defense, right? So, as we know, antivirus works some of the time, firewalls work some of the time, AI to detect anomalies in data flows or port use. Oh, that works some of the time. I'm seeing more and more companies evolve to the question that are offering new approaches to look for anomalous behavior. They've trained what looks normal. Oh, this looks abnormal. (laughs) Raise a red flag. And there's no question that these techniques we've heard about, such as micro-segmentation of networks or zero trust architectures are part of the solution.
2: Isn't the solution just supposed to be blockchain? I I learned and forget what that means many times. What's your take on that? Uh, Since that seems to be key and now we're seeing even in the setting of COVID, a hospital is being hacked and held ransom with ransomware. Um, what's your take on blockchain, since it's a bit of a buzzword, too?
1: Well, but as you know, I'm editor-in-chief of blockchain and healthcare. Why did I choose to be editor-in-chief of that? To tell everyone what blockchain doesn't do. <laughs> right? Blockchain is a mechanism that really does help us when we need to have non-repudiation. So let's imagine, in a time of COVID, A Pfizer vaccine comes out and Daniel gets two doses. And now I'm making this up, Michael. He wants to go to a rock concert and the rock concert says, as long as you bring proof of vaccination, you'll go in the door. Okay. well, he pulls out his phone and he's a pretty smart guy and he creates a phony QR code. Well, the blockchain notion is what if Pfizer or the administrator of the vaccine does a secure transaction to a blockchain backend and the QR code is generated from the blockchain backend. Oh, well, that pretty much says eh, he couldn't have faked it. So where there's need for proof, blockchain at least tells you an audit trail can be believed
2: and on that topic, uh, which I think is super important now that we're, hopefully going to have cheaper, faster testing at home or to go get to school or work, and you want to prove you're negative to get to that concert, or that you've been vaccinated and uh, you've got antibodies, let's say. Um, there's a platform that came out of part of our X-Prize called Common Pass uh, from uh, Common Health, and it's literally a digital yellow card. Uh, and They're tying it into airlines and sporting arenas, Um I think the, the 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 clear folks have something similar as well. So we're going to need those sorts of technologies to connect the dots on our vaccine status, as well as to do the sort of stage four follow ups. You know, are you having side effects? How how long did your uh, protection last? Because this is still a big global experiment uh, in the COVID era.
1: And the good news, just this topic, Michael, is that the industry has agreed on one common standard to represent proof of vaccination: the health card standard that Josh Mandel created as a fire implementation guide, which is just one of the standards that's being used by the the Common Pass or the various Apple kinds of um, health kit-type products.
0: We have another question from Twitter. Personal health technology is is one thing for mentally, quote-unquote, healthy people. What about those suffering from dementia or other mental illness? And I will add that one of the things you're describing with healthcare at home with sensors at home is to some degree you are offloading the burden of collecting data and tracking data from the clinician onto this distributed workforce namely patients. And how do we manage that and I think that leads us directly into some of the ethical issues
1: so my mom is almost 80 and I said, hey mom do you know that the uh, information blocking and interoperability rule allow you allow you to use a fire r4 API to download your healthcare data and be the steward and she said I have not a clue what you just said and I'm more than happy to let you do it but I don't want to do it so I could hypothesize that we're going to have a whole new Kind of healthcare worker that will be the health coach, the care manager, this care traffic controller kind of person who does assist those without, say, digital comfort, getting these digital workflows implemented.
2: And the digital workflows are getting simpler. I mean, we mentioned earlier voice. You know, you don't need to train your your eighty year old mom to use Alexa to say, "Hey, uh, did I take my meds?" or I Help! I fall and I can't get up, or to track voice, or you know the work out of MIT with Wi-Fi that can sort of seamlessly pick up behaviors and even sleep patterns and vital signs. So we're kind of moving to this ambient sensing world without wearables. So that leads to privacy issues, like who and who owns the data, um, and when it picks up, you know, mental health changes from your voice to your behaviors, or your sleep. You know, who gets notified? Um, I, I love the idea of the health care, health traffic controller. And some of those are going to become more and more automated and up level to the, to the son or the clinician uh, only at the right sort of gating.
1: And this is an Arthur C. Clarke you know, rule I, that my mom, because I happen to have created platforms in her home, walks over to a device and just talks to it. And it just works. And I didn't actually even train her, and she's going and giving commands to these devices. It's like, my God, this is actually magic.
0: What are the primary ethical issues when it comes to the the unique aspects of healthcare data, such as the type that you're collecting and aggregating?
1: So there's so many ethical issues, and I serve on a number of national and international. Data ethics advisory boards. What data can be used from whom for what purpose? And if value results from an algorithm or something derived from that data, should the person who contributed it get a micropayment? What consent is needed if? Data that is de-identified and aggregated is used for algorithm development. I mean, these are all unanswered societal questions.
2: Well, I like to think of it from the perspective that we all should be incentivized to become sort of, you know, not just blood donors, organ donors, but data donors and get something back. And my overused example is, you know, Google Maps and Waze. We're sort of sharing our private data, our speed and location, and it builds the Traffic map, and we don't get paid to report that there's an accident or a slowdown. It sort of helps inform, and sometimes it's gamified with points um, on ways. But in general, we all sort of benefit from 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 donating, still hopefully in safe, anonymized ways. Um, and in fact, there's now even a platform. this one called Stuff That Works out of out of Israel, where if you've got a condition from psoriasis to migraines to cancer, you can donate your data and find others like you, and then it'll give you synthesis of information back. So Hopefully, it'll be like if you're a data donor, you'll get sort of the benefits from that um, at big levels or, or, or small. And so we sort of align that piece, and also maybe you need to reinvent or reshape, um, you know, HIPAA laws, which were you know pre-digital, so that they're not fearmongering in terms of enabling folks to share data when they want to in in clinical settings or outside.
1: A couple of elements to that. So Mayo is in the process of rewriting its general consent to give five kinds of choice. Here's an interesting challenge, you know, Daniel. You can't just give infinite numbers of choices because then you're just not going to be able to enforce it or respect the patient's will. But you could probably give about five and say, "Oh, you say you don't want to contribute your data to research or product development." Okay, you know, it's very discrete, right? So that we're finishing up that we'll be holding a conference in March, bringing together a number of international experts to look at the consent and get opinions. Everything that I have done is done with de identified data that has been certified by a third party expert as de identified, meaning that it is pretty hard to re identify. And the definition we use for de identified is the data is sufficiently ambiguous such that it cannot be distinguished among 10 different patients. And we've done this for structured data. But just last month, we released about 7 million unstructured patients' records, notes, reports, and that kind of thing. Devilishly difficult to de-identify text. But it, we have done certification with the third-party experts that we've succeeded.
2: It's interesting, I think, is when you start to de-identify that and make it open, you can run sort of data challenges on those and maybe identify sort of biomarkers of disease or pathways of care that... We're not uh, visible. Um, our friend um, Atul Butte at UCSF, you know has access to all the prescribing data and amongst all the UCS, they prescribe very differently for, let's say diabetes, et cetera. And if you can sort of get insight into that, you might find the ones that are really most evidence based or most health economic uh, impactful. so. I think the more we can federate and anonymize and share that data, let people mine it and unsilo, you know, the mail connects to Stanford, to Harvard, to Geisinger, to Kaiser, to the NHS, a lot of things can accelerate.
0: Kwaja Sheikh makes the important point on this ethical issue. He says that ethnicity of data also matters. Solutions built on US geographic data, for example, may not work for India. So that's another layer to this ethical issue. Question
1: This whole question that we've been talking about is equitable care, disparities of care. One aspect of that is bias in algorithms, and how do you even detect bias? And so, one of the projects that I've been working on as part of Mayo Clinic platform, but also Mayo Clinic in general, is bringing together a number of experts to be able to say, Can we develop the sensors that understand when an algorithm? Is biased? Or if it is biased, is it useful in some subsets versus others? And so you'll see a whole lot of activity and papers coming out of trying to answer such questions.
2: And speaking of India, they're on not just the bias side, but on let's say the genomic side, now that it's getting cheaper to do full sequencing, uh, there's groups trying to make sure you get. Folks from Asia, not just Europe, and and then inform the algorithms uh, when we're trying to do pharmacogen- ge- pharmacogenetics or uh, polygenic risk scores that it's based on the population you come from.
0: We have another question from Twitter. You can see I really like taking the questions from from Twitter and LinkedIn, and this is from Irma. Rust and Irma says, what is the role of clinical patient registries in all this?
1: Well, so why are registries important? I mean, we've talked about a lot of elements of a platform. A registry often takes much deeper data than would be stored in an electronic health record or an administrative billing transaction. And it's used because it's disease specific. I will tell you, I've worked on a lot of cancer registries and so much of the cancer data, which is staging data, biomarker, genomics data, you're having to pull today out of text. (laughs) And that's not always easy. So I guess last example I'll give you is in the time of COVID, especially as we've tried to understand efficacy of various treatments, registries have provided us with data that we would have never gathered in a traditional way. So registries are really an important adjunct data source.
2: And now even the idea of, you know, um, the, the, the patient as a scientist, particularly with long COVID, there's several good examples of, of uh, patients themselves who've had all these strange neurologic and other symptoms building their own sort of registries and crowdsourcing those that are going to be super helpful for understanding the longer term sequelae and how to treat them.
0: Now, you've mentioned COVID, and maybe that's a topic that we should talk about before we leave. So, we, everybody reads the news, we know what's going on. Personalize it for us. What's actually going on right now with regard to COVID? Should, is there a problem?
2: I'll uh, just say like one short thing if someone hasn't read the Atlantic article out by Ed Young today about sort of the impact on COVID on um, frontline clinicians, you know, you know, survived a couple of waves and are now completely stretched thin and, uh, you know, Midwest, especially um, it's, I mean, and we're what we're speaking now in November of 2000. You think some of these things, like even PPE that were an issue back in March, April, weren't still an issue today. I think we're in a, a dark space. We hope the vaccine's going to come, but we're in a pretty uh, challenging element right now. And I think uh, we still need to band together and do smart science and public health that we're going to out of this.
1: Since March of 2020, I have co-led the National COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition of 1,200 companies for situational awareness, for understanding PPE, supply and demand, for looking at contact tracing, testing efficacy, cures and vaccines. So what can I say as of November 2020 is our current issue? We are in a moment, and uh, Daniel used the term dark, where we have unchecked exponential growth of COVID in this country. Yesterday, we passed 160,000 unique cases. Depends what model you believe, right? University of Washington, IHME, MITRE, there's a whole variety. The models are currently suggesting as of November, 2020, that we will have 1 million dead by February. And that, is a wake-up call.
0: It is pretty extraordinary to watch the numbers, those graphs on the news every day. It wasn't too long ago a week where the number of cases was 100,000. Now we're up to 160,000, as you said. Regardless of what the government may do at this point, short of immediate and very dramatic behavior change across the country is there anything that can stop the continued exponential growth of this disease right now?
2: wear a damn mask uh, socially distance uh, don't get covid uh, fatigue in that sense I mean stay vigilant for your 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 personal self and your friends and your family and your community that can certainly help but we are in this exponential phase I mean a doubling—you know, 64, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four—it moves quickly, and people tend to think linearly. And uh, so, I think we all need to sort of redouble our sort of basic elements. Hopefully, get out rapid COVID tests at scale that we uh, that we need, even if they're not perfect. I mean, uh, you know, a test is going to be zero percent sensitivity and specificity if it's not taken. Um, so that's a element that needs to accelerate. Um, and then, uh, you know, supporting our 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 folks in the front lines. Um. And, and hopefully with the incoming administration, uh, getting real science uh, and policy put into place.
1: Wear a mask everywhere, every time, no exceptions. No gatherings greater than 10 people ever for any purpose. Social distance, don't travel. This holiday season, don't travel. I mean, these are just the very basics. and I know so many of these messages may have been politicized. All you have to do is look at the data. It's the only way we're going to start to bend the curve.
0: We've been given all of this advice since almost the beginning of, last, of, the, of this year. It hasn't worked so far, and so my question really is, is exponential growth for the next couple of months virtually inevitable to continue
1: i hope not <laughs> and you know i think daniel and i both recognize it's not going to be one size fitting all there's going to be a regional variation um, yes there are certainly cures and yes there are vaccines coming the challenge is we're in this for the long haul and even when the vaccines are fully deployed There are 7.7 billion people on this planet, depending on whether it's a single dose or double dose vaccine. Let's say on average, we're going to need 12 billion doses of vaccine. Just go look at the supply chain to deliver 12 billion doses of vaccine. It will take two to three years. And so I really hope that we just don't lose this war through attrition and refusal to change. that, as people recognize that the exponential growth means the death of loved ones, they will recognize that this is not a political issue; it's a survival issue.
2: And on top of the sort of pandemic, of course, the infodemic has exacerbated this. Whether it's you know just lots of information hard to to grok, all the way to you know uh, on purpose malinformation. Uh, and uh, we already have the issue with anti vaxxers. We have a huge issue that's already here with sort of uh, vaccine resistance. Folks, even who are clinicians, are saying, I'm not going to take it for the first six months. So I think going forward, we need to um, reestablish trust across uh, folks who are not perfect. I mean, Anthony Fauci has changed positions as data and information has emerged, but to get back to a setting where um, you know the infodemic doesn't make the pandemic twice as worse. I would close it with a stronger suit, and maybe, John, you can uh, riff on this just briefly is that you know the silver lining of COVID is that there's an amazing amount of innovation, whether it's 3D printing ventilators or new vaccines, new collaborations, new data sets, um, a lot of energy that is in, from virtual care uh, to testing platforms that will hopefully transform healthcare in positive ways and will, big picture, hopefully save more lives than COVID will take in the in the in the in the in the future. So there may be some silver linings out of this.
1: So what has happened in a time of COVID is competitors have come together for collaborations that that I have never seen in my career. And this means that we're moving forward on gathering data, distributing PPE, looking at novel testing, looking at novel therapies, disseminating evidence and working together as a unified coalition. so Sure, we're in a dark place, but the number of parties working together to make it better is many, and it spans government, academia, and industry.
0: All right. On that inspiring note, thank you, everybody, for watching. Thanks to our amazing guests. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website, and we'll send you excellent emails. Thanks so much, everybody. I hope you have a great day. Next week, we're speaking with Eric Yuan. He's the CEO of Zoom. So check it out. Wear a mask, everybody. Bye-bye.